0: This morning, as we look at this initial text, this will uh, guide us into this topical study. It won't be too many more weeks, and we will be uh, through this study on the attributes of God. And then, um, if the Lord wills, we'll be back into the Gospel of John. But for our purposes today, Genesis chapter 2, we'll go there in just one moment. When God gives a command, God gives a command, it's the people of God's responsibility to obey that command. No qualifications, no questions asked. When God gives us a command, he calls us to obey. One of the most well-known commandments it's found on the heels of the, the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 2. I want to have you look with me at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, that is Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die moving forward to Genesis chapter 3 most of us are very familiar with this particular section of scripture and we know that the serpent slithered into Eve's life and as 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 tells us very plainly the serpent deceived Eve notice as the story unfolds in Genesis 3 verse 6 and made themselves cloths. as the story continues, we know that the first couple now, as they have committed this horrible, sinful act, is their next step was to hide from the very presence of god genesis three eight says that they hid among the trees of the garden, and we hear in verse nine these words that must have been frightening words that echoed and reverberated throughout the garden. Where are you? God says to Adam. Verse 10, Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat. And the man said, it's the classic line that all men are familiar with. (laughs) It was that chick. Doesn't say that, does it? The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Well, Ladies, you're not off the hook either because men are not only good at passing the buck, women are also adept at passing the buck. In verse 13, the Lord says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, it was the slithering snake. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In verses 14 and 15, God pronounces a curse on the serpent. And I want you to pay close attention to verse 15, where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians refer to as the first gospel. Where does the gospel first emerge in the pages of scripture? Not in the New Testament, but On the pages of Genesis chapter 3, where one person in the future, one being, his, his heel would be bruised. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And another being, which is Satan, the diabolos, the devil, the serpent, the angel of light, his head would be crushed. And we know now, looking back at the story of redemptive history, that took place where? It took place at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God pronounces this important curse on the serpent. And then in verse 16, I want you to see his response to Eve. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Verses 17 to 19, we see God's response to Adam. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread Till the return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Many of you are aware that there is a a a huge amount of theology that needs to be unpacked in Genesis chapter two and Genesis chapter three. Here we observe the, the fall of mankind into sin. And there's so much emphasis that I could place this morning on the curse that has been placed upon the serpent and God's response to Adam and Eve, especially as it relates to gender roles. But for our purposes today, I want to move past those very important matters, and I want you to focus on something that may be new for you. I want to have you focus on something that I think should absolutely astonish you. If you go back to Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, you once again see the command of the living God for Adam and Eve, a command which they disobeyed. And here is the reality that I trust either has astonished you at some point in your Christian life, or today it may astonish you for the very first time. And here it is. Are you ready? When Adam and Eve commit cosmic treason, They don't die. Is anyone astonished by that? Because you remember from Genesis 2, verse 17, that God says, The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we have studied together the distinction between mercy and justice. We have learned that some people receive mercy. Some people receive justice. No one receives injustice. So let me ask if at the point of of Eve's sin, and as she offered the fruit to her husband, Adam, and he in turn sinned, if God would have utterly destroyed those people, would God have been a just God? He would be a just God. They would not have received mercy. They would have received justice. And so when I say that when they sinned, they didn't instantly die, I hope that absolutely astonishes you. You see, our first parents plunged all of humanity on a course of sin. It was a, a deadly collision course with sin. And our first parents, as Genesis 3, 23, and 24 teach, they were banished from the garden. Imagine having Everything at your disposal, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now they commit this sin and they are banished from the garden. One commentator says it like this. Cut off from the source of life and the tree of life. They, that is our first parents, are in the realm of the dead. What they experience outside of Eden is not life as God intended, but spiritual death. But instead, as we've already made clear, instead of physical death, I want you to see what God does instead. In verse 21 of chapter 3, we read another piece of astonishing news. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Can you imagine what it must have been like for these Naked people, no shame, no sin. They had no idea they didn't have fruit of the loom, right? They had no idea they were naked. When they committed the sin, all of a sudden, whoops. And God could have struck them instantly. What does he do? Graciously, he provides garments of skin and he clothes them. It's an absolutely unbelievable thing. We worship a God. We serve a God who is altogether long-suffering. And while the Bible is filled with numerous examples of this important attribute, one thing that I have discovered is that the the long-suffering of God sometimes gets overlooked. It's an amazing thing because as I prepare for this study, and I think this is the 16th message in this series, is I will go to, first and foremost, the Word of God to study the attribute. But then I will go also to, to strategic leaders in church history and theologians and pastors to see what has been written through the ages. And, and more often than not, when you move to the subject of long-suffering, the subject is omitted altogether. It's an astonishing thing. So this is a subject that tends to get overlooked. It's a subject that tends to get set aside. What I want to do this morning is to, to turn the spotlight on to the long-suffering of God. My prayer is that as we study this attribute, attribute together, that this will heighten your awareness of God who is intimately involved with his people. My prayer is that as we study the long-suffering of God, that your heart will well up in worship of God, that you would find your satisfaction in him, and him alone. And then finally, my prayer is that as we learn about a God who is long-suffering, that we would be motivated ourselves to be a people who are long-suffering. And so let's look at these great realities together. God is long-suffering. And we we use the same strategy that we have used for several weeks now, very simply, I want to give you a basic definition of long-suffering. We'll move forward to look at a description of long-suffering, and then finally, we'll apply these great realities to our lives. A.W. Pink gives what I consider the best definition I could surface. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, Long-suffering is that power of control... Which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and to forbear so long in punishing them. And I want to have you turn with me to the book of Exodus for a moment. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And this should not shock you in any way, shape, or form as we have looked at Exodus chapter 34 several times as we have explored a few other attributes of God. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Here we see once again the interaction with God and Moses. Begin in verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. If you would hold your finger in Exodus 34 and make special attention in your mind to the words slow to anger, this is where the attribute of long suffering emerges. And I want to show a few other verses on the PowerPoint screen to uh, visualize these in your mind. I want to begin with Numbers chapter 14. If we could go back one slide and look at what the word of God says. It says, the Lord is slow to anger. That is, he is long suffering. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And then Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We read the identical words in Psalm 145, verse 8. Once again, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So as I have encouraged you to pay careful attention to those words, slow to anger. The phrase comes from a Hebrew word that means this, it means long-suffering before getting angry. And I think that's a very important definition as we live in a culture, and I've, I've shared it on numerous occasions, a culture who is uncomfortable with the notion of an angry God. A culture who is uncomfortable with the notion of a God of wrath. Well, if God is not a God of wrath, he could certainly not be a God who is long-suffering. The two come together, and so in a few weeks we will turn our attention in a formal way to the study of the wrath of God. But for now, pay close attention to this this notion of God being slow to anger, long suffering before getting angry. It means this God is patient with his rebellious creatures. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God was long-suffering with Adam and Eve? Aren't you glad that God was long-suffering with you? John Frame says it like this. One day, all wrongs will be righted. God will punish all sin, either by punishing the offender or placing his sins on Jesus. That is the only option for God. He will either punish the offender or he will place the offender's sins on Jesus. And I want you to think for a moment about the weightiness of these words. Because there will be a final reckoning. God's holy justice will fall on every unrepentant person. Jonathan Edwards makes this abundantly clear. He says this, he says, so that sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving of eternal punishment, close quote. But that is the subject of our topic today. But God is slow. To anger. He delays his judgment and he gives people an opportunity to repent. He delays his judgment and gives people an opportunity to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they will be saved from whom? God. Because God will, at the end of the day, he will yield. Or wield, better put, that sword of judgment. But God is so gracious. He is so long-suffering. He is slow to anger. He delays his judgment and gives people an opportunity to repent of their sins. Second Peter three nine probably says it clearer than any other passage in Scripture. The Apostle Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. Toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As we think about the the long suffering of God, I want to provide several examples. How is it that God demonstrates this attribute? Well, the first example is one we've already looked at. He shows long suffering with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and He does it in a very clear way. But secondly, I want to have you turn to the book of Nehemiah. The book of of Nehemiah in Nehemiah, chapter nine. It's one of several passages that we could look at after the book of Ezra comes Nehemiah. But I want you to look with me at the defiance and the rebelliousness of Israel, the people of God and highlight Israel's sin and also highlight, more importantly, God's patience. Look at Nehemiah, chapter nine, verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that were performed among them. And they, were, they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Stop. Whenever a creature stiffens his or her neck... Whenever a creature rebels against the living God, whenever a creature says, I will not obey, God can do what? Judge instantaneously. Notice what happens. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. There's our word. And abounding in steadfast love, and he did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, quote, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. I want you to see that our God is a God God. Of long suffering, even when Israel was a defiant people, even when they were rebellious people, God was slow to anger. Most of us are familiar with the sin and the rebellious nature and the defiance of Israel, but we are less familiar with this third example, and that is the sins of the Ninevites. Whenever you think of Nineveh, the first character that should probably pop into your mind is. Jonah, because Jonah was the one God instructed, go and preach the word of God to the Ninevites. And we know that Jonah went in the opposite direction. Well, Genesis chapter 10 tells us that Nineveh was formed by a man. And for, for the women who are, are pregnant at Christ Fellowship, we have a few. This would just be a, my, my suggestion You you and your husband have to do whatever you want. My suggestion would be to not name your baby after this man. Ready? Nimrod. Nimrod. Now, if I get an email and it says, Hester Dave, we decided to name him Nimrod. That's up to you. But Nimrod, it just doesn't sound good, does it? Nimrod, it's kind of fun to say though, Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, he is the individual who founded Nineveh. He's the guy who founded Nineveh and the word of God and and commentators tell us that this was a city surrounded by high walls. It was fortified by 200 towers and encircled by a moat. I mean, this is, this is Lord of the Rings kind of stuff, right? It was an amazing city, but it was a city, as the book of Nahum tells us, that was a city of violence. I'm not going to have you turn to Nahum, but in Nahum chapter 3, let me just read a few little bits of insight. Woe to the bloody city, says Nahum, full of lies and plunder. No end to its prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, slashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful of deadly charms, who betrays nation with her whorings and people of her charms. Nahum chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. Simply put, Nineveh was a city of deceit. Nineveh was the Las Vegas of the day. It was run by mafia thugs filled with lust and prostitution and witchcraft and idolatry and a host of other evil kinds of activities. It is no wonder that Jonah chose to flee in the opposite direction when called upon by God to preach to these wicked people. Yet, yet, Jonah ultimately, as you know, as he was spewed out of the mouth of the whale, Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and those people repented. Incidentally, I actually had to edit this sermon because this this sermon had a... Uh, a a tone and a texture at this point that I don't think some young parents would have appreciated with their young children. I actually had things in my notes, horrible, horrible kinds of warfare activity that I found very interesting, but I'm sure that uh, would, would actually frighten little children that was edited out. And so really use your imagination, see what kind of a, a wicked city this was when referring to the city Of Nineveh. In Jonah chapter 4, Jonah prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, the opposite direction. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. There are many examples of God's long-suffering as he was long-suffering to Adam and Eve, as he was long-suffering to Israel, long-suffering demonstrated to this wicked, wicked city, the city of Nineveh. But there's a final example. I believe that you will see God's long-suffering to rebels in our culture. What do those rebels look like? Have you ever thought about that? Who is it in our day and age that God demonstrates This attribute of long-suffering. Well, he is long-suffering with Muslims who deny the living God. He is long-suffering with Muslims who deny the doctrine of the Trinity. God is long-suffering with Mormons who claim a pantheon of gods. When the Bible says there is only one living God. God is long-suffering with new-age gurus who claim to be God themselves. Our God is long-suffering with homosexual offenders who shake an angry fist in the face of Almighty God. God is also long-suffering with heterosexual offenders who also commit sexual sin, who shake an angry face in the face of God. God is long-suffering to housewives who fail to submit to the authority of God. God is long-suffering to the average, normal American who lives his or her life according to his or her terms and fails to submit to Jesus, fails to obey Jesus, fails to trust Jesus, fails to worship Jesus, or fails to believe in Jesus. God is long-suffering to these kinds of people. A.W. Pink observes, On every side, people are sinning with a high hand. The divine law is trampled underfoot, and God himself openly despised. It is truly amazing that he does not instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. Why does not the righteous wrath of heaven make an end of such abominations? Have you ever asked that question, especially in the culture that we find ourselves in? Pink continues, only one answer is possible because God bears with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Close quote. Let me take a minute to give three basic descriptions of this attribute of God. First of all, I want you to see that God in the word of God and in our experience, God is consistently slow to anger. Psalm 8615 says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Second, I want you to see that God's suffering literally points to his patience. It proves his patience. Romans 2 4 says, Or you do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And then finally, would you see with me that God's long suffering reminds us, as I've already indicated, it reminds us that wrath, holy wrath, is on the horizon for every unrepentant person. Romans 9.22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endeared, or endured rather, with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You see, God's long-suffering or his patience provides a template for how we should be living the Christian life. In the last two verses that I cited in Romans 2, 4 and Romans 9.22, we saw the words patience emerging. Patience. Both of those words patience come from a Greek word. It's the word makrothumia. Makrothumia. Let's do it together. I'm going to say one, two, three. And could you say makrothumia with me? One, two, three. Makrothumia. There you go. What does it mean? Makrothumia means patience or forbearing. Now for the young people, it's patience or forbearing. I'm going to give you my grandfather's definition of macrothumia. Are you ready? Long suffering. You want to hear it again? Probably not. That's Mokrathumia. God is long-suffering. He is long-suffering. That's the definition. So in 1 Timothy 1.16, the word emerges again. Paul says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience. As an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So I want to apply this to our hearts and to our minds. And may it make a a huge difference on the way we live the Christian lives. Only two points. Number one, God calls us to demonstrate makrathumia. He calls us to demonstrate patience as a matter of habit in our Christian lives as Christ followers. Some of you may be thinking ahead of me, and I hope you are, because patience, as Galatians 5 spells it out, is an important fruit of the Holy Spirit. Demonstrating the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you remember, means walking according to the Spirit. And it's something that happens day after day after day after day. And so the the fruit of the Spirit of patience, along with all of the other fruits of the Spirit, those are written in the imperative mood. Very simply, it means this. We are commanded to be people of Makrathumia. We are are commanded to be people who follow the lead of God, who is long-suffering. Secondly, God calls us to a life of patience in our interactions with one another. You say, I knew that the theology was going to lead to something really, really practical, right? Because God is long-suffering, he calls us to be long-suffering, to demonstrate a life of patience in our interactions with one another. Look at it in Ephesians 4, 1-2. Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul also says in Colossians 3, and before I read this, I want you to think about something that might have happened this last week. Someone that was was grating on your nerves, right? I remember I used to go to a barber. I know that's hard for many of you to believe, but I used to go to a barber, and he had a a little sign of a very nasty-looking person on the sign, and it said, you're on my last nerve. It's like, wow, that's a barber you want to go to with a razor on your neck, right? Listen to what Colossians chapter 3 says. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. What's it mean? It means husbands, God is calling you to be patient with your wife. It means wives, God is calling you to be patient with your husband. Pastor, you don't understand. My husband has a to-do list that's longer than you can ever imagine. Pastor, you don't understand. My husband has failed me in so many ways. Pastor, you don't understand. God has called you. To be patient with your husband. Young people, God calls you to be patient with your mom and your dad. Moms and dads, God is calling you to be patient with your child. But you don't understand. He or she doesn't do his homework. You don't understand. He or she's rebellious. You don't understand. He or she defies my authority. God is calling every mom and dad to be patient with their children. You see, this call to to long-suffering cuts across every area of our lives. This is one thing I hear from time to time. We want it to be practical. Give us something practical. Be patient with a frustrating employer. Church members are called upon to be patient with their leaders, elders, and deacons. Citizens are called upon, ready for the conviction to set in. Citizens are called upon to be patient with their government who's ruining their nation. There's no political agenda there whatsoever. We are called as the people of God to be patient with police officers and patient with Law enforcement, patient with judges, patient with attorneys, patient with governors, patient with legislators, patient with senators, patient with people in the highest office in the land. First Thessalonians 514 says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak and be patient with everyone. You might say, Pastor, you, you have no idea what I'm going through in my life right now. It is literally an impossible task for me to be patient. As we close today, I want to challenge you with this. If you're here today and you say, I just, I can't do it. It's this makrathumi is a cool word, but this notion of long suffering, I, I can't do it. If that is you, and I know there will be many who say, I just can't do it. It's too difficult. If you say you can't manifest the fruit of the spirit of patience, that indicates one very important reality is you have a major problem with pride. The scriptures are very clear about the sin of pride. God says, I oppose the proud person. And so what do you do today? If you struggle with pride, Today is the day to confess it to the living God. Today is the day to take the sin of pride to the foot of the cross. Because you know what happens to pride at the cross? Pride is utterly annihilated. Pride is destroyed at the cross. Pride is crushed at the cross. My favorite Puritan, a man of the name of Thomas Watson, said this. True repentance, like nitric acid, eats asunder the chain of sin. The only way you can take your sin to the cross is by grace and by grace alone. And it reminds us today of the power of the gospel. When I say, if you have pride in your life, you need to deal with the pride. You need to become a person who manifests the the quality of macrathumia, of long-suffering. But we're taught in American culture, do it yourself. Pull up your boots. You put on your own set of jeans, right? You do it yourself. You man up. You woman up. You can do it. You can do it. And that is not the teaching of the scripture. The teaching of the scripture, it is only through the power of the gospel. So if you wrestle with pride, if you wrestle with being a person who who demonstrates long suffering consistently, the answer is to turn to Jesus. To turn to Jesus who by the power of the gospel will enable you to be rid of that pride. Who will enable you by his grace to be a person who demonstrates long suffering consistently. Aren't you glad that God is slow to anger? As I studied for this message that's, that's the question. I, I thought about it. I typed it. I retyped it. It's in my notes several times. Aren't you glad that God is slow to anger? Because if God were not slow to... We'd be gone. We'd be gone. And so may the long-suffering God, who calls his people to be long-suffering, grant you the ability to be patient with the shortcomings and the sin of other people. May we be characterized at Christ's Fellowship as a a people who are a a gracious people. I talked to someone, I I met a new friend today, and actually it was very encouraging to me to hear. I, I came to this church because we believe that you teach Reformed theology. That really encouraged me because I love Reformed theology. But you know what would make me even more encouraged? If someone came to Christ Fellowship and said, we heard that this is a gracious church. We heard that this is a church who is long suffering. We heard that this is a church who who is merciful to sinners. We heard that this is a church who who reaches out to homosexuals. We heard that this is a church who loves Muslims and loves Mormons and loves Jehovah's Witnesses. We heard that this is a church who who wants to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus by his grace and for his glory. May we, too, be a gracious, long-suffering people and model after a God who is altogether gracious. The word of God says the Lord is merciful And gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Oh, that we would model after the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're so uh, grateful that you are a God who is slow to anger. But thank you for giving us opportunity to, to believe Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to turn from our sins. I thank you for the gospel today that enables us to do all these things. We know that in and of ourselves, none of these things can happen. We don't have the resources. We don't have the ability. We don't have the desire. We would go our own way, a way that is, is paved straight to hell. So thank you for being a God who is slow to anger. Thank you for being kind, as we sung about earlier. Thank you for being a compassionate God. May we be just that kind of people here in our community so that people would learn about Christ's fellowship and learn that we are committed not only to Scripture and not only to the gospel, but they would know that we are a a kind people, a gracious people, a a long-suffering kind of people because that's what kind of a God you are. Help us to represent you well. In this community, so that you would be glorified above all things in your son's worthy name, we pray. Amen. Today, we would like to invite you to share in our supper with us. The only condition is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Before we do, I'd like to read. As we close today, I want to offer this uh, final challenge. This is a, a sermon today. That it would be very easier for you to say, for husbands to say to their wives, Honey, we need to get that sermon to someone. They really need to work on that. Or wives can say to their husband, You know, honey, we need to get this to old, old Joe or Fred or Tom or Nancy or whoever it is. This is the day for you to say, How can I learn to model the gospel rightly? By being long suffering. So would you think as we close in a word of prayer. Would you ask God. God how can I demonstrate long suffering. To someone this week. Let's pray. Father help us to do this. Uh, by your grace and for your glory. And we uh, follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Who was and is always long suffering. One who is slow to anger. So as we. Uh go to work, as we go to school, as we carry uh, out our normal everyday functions this week. Help us to be a people committed to being slow to anger, committed to being long-suffering, committed to uh, living in a way that glorifies you, the God of this world. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.